you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as we continue through this wonderful letter. I knew this was coming, um, but it kind of snuck up on me anyway. Back on December 4th, as we started our sermon series directed towards Christmas, uh, we talked about celebrating different things, and uh, one of the things that we were celebrating was a new beginning, and the passage that we used to talk about how Christ is our new beginning was uh, Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. So not that long ago, we just looked at this passage before, um, and yet as uh, I, we approached this week, I was like, oh, here we are, and uh, we're going to do this again. That being said, uh, even and so it's a little bit of what I would call a weird situation to be able to preach a passage so soon after I had preached it once before. That being said, uh, as uh, Bob Hayden told me uh, when we were discussing Romans, there's a lot of meat on that bone. And so uh, I'm excited to come with you with this passage once again. We're going to specifically uh, be looking at verses 18 through 21. We're going to read the whole passage, but uh, for the majority of our time, uh, we're going to really dig into that piece of the passage. And so I want to make sure that you pay close attention to that. Hopefully by now, though, you found chapter 5. So if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Again, chapter 5, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again, Lord, in awe of who you are, thankful for the opportunity to worship this morning with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with friends, to come into this place and to 
tune out the rest of the world and the messages that they may try to give us to tune directly into who you are and what you are trying to say. That we may have direction. That we may have life. Father, I pray that you would that you would speak this morning in a way that changes our lives. We pray this in the beautiful, beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As has become our custom, uh, it is good for us to take a quick review. You'll notice throughout Romans, if you haven't already, that he on a pretty continuous basis is using words like therefore or for, and it's because all of Romans is connected. It's, it's an essay that moves from a thesis to supporting point and another supporting point and another supporting point. And for that reason, we have made it our custom as we have gone through the book of Romans to kind of do a quick review and catch up to where we are in the present in, in this morning. And so I want to do that once again. Um, you'll notice that as we go through at times, I'm going to condense these reviews a little bit so that we can better get through what we are and get to the meat of what we are looking at this morning. So when we look at a review of chapters one through four, Paul introduces to us the gospel in chapter one, 16 and 17. He gives us the thesis of Romans and talks about the gospel that has come and its power to save and how we are to live in righteousness now because of that gospel. And then he begins to give supporting points. Um, he begins to help us to understand why we need this gospel, why we need salvation. And the first part of that is that we have all broken God's law, all of us. Not a single one of us can claim that, no, we're perfect, that we haven't done anything wrong. All of us must admit that we have looked at God and said, I think I can do it better. And in doing so, we have made choices that go against what God has declared to be wrong, or we have made choices that go against what he has declared to be right. And just as the law tells us what we should or should not be doing, it also tells us what the prescription is for those that break the law. So our law of the land tells us that if you steal something, then you're going to have to pay a fine, and then you're probably going to have to spend some time in jail. If you murder someone, then a fine is not good enough. You're definitely going to spend some time in jail, if not worse. And we have prescriptions based on what law you have broken. When you break the law of God, though, it is a completely different sentence. When you break the eternal law of God, then you are rightly given a punishment that fits. And so we see that not only have we all broken God's law, but that we have been justly convicted and rightly sentenced. God is perfect. He is all-knowing. He is all-seeing. And he is perfect in his judgments. And therefore, we none of us can stand before a holy God and say, I think this guilty verdict is incorrect. No, we stand before him and we must agree. Yeah, we are guilty. And because we are guilty, then we are rightly sentenced to death, which is the prescripted uh, sentence for those that have broken God's law. And not just death physically, but as we have talked about in weeks previous, death of the soul, that separation from God in a place called hell for all of eternity. So it's not just, uh, not just physical death, it's something much bigger than that. And so we find ourselves in this state 
having broken God's law, having been justly convicted and rightly sentenced, this is where we find ourselves in chapters 1 and chapters 2. And we figure out pretty quickly there is no self-help. You cannot simply do better. You cannot simply be a good person. That's not how the law works. That's not how justice works. Even in our country, if you were to murder someone and then stand before the judge and say, but I've been a good person and I promise to be a good person after this, that doesn't free you in the law. You're still going to have to go through the sentencing. You're still going to have to carry out the sentence for what you have done. In the same way, we cannot just be better or not be good enough to earn God's blessing or to earn heaven. And so we find ourselves guilty, condemned, with no way out. It is into this situation that Paul in chapter 3 says, but now. And those are glorious, glorious words. He says, but now we can be justified, in other words, declared innocent by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul begins to explain how that's possible. How is it possible that we as guilty, uh, morally deficient, sentenced to hell individuals can be found righteous and just and innocent before a holy God? And the answer is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus lived a perfect life and then he voluntarily laid down his life to pay a price that we could not pay. So his blood ransoms us. It redeems us. So that now when God, a holy God looks at you and I, he does not see our imperfection. He does not see our rebellion, our sin. Rather, what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ imparted on us. And to that, he declares us innocent and worthy of heaven. Paul gets excited about that. Paul, after having proclaimed all of that, having shown us the depths of our sin and the depths of our need, and then showing us the but now, that we can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ because of his work of redemption on the cross and in the resurrection, Paul gets so excited that he jumps in to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, he desires for us to see our current position Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So Paul says there are some things about our current position. Now, for those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, everything has changed. For one, now we have peace with God. Where before we were his enemies, now we are his family. That is an incredible, incredible change. No longer is God at war with us and no longer are we at war with him. But now we have been adopted into the family of God to enjoy the presence of God, to enjoy all of the benefits of being a child of the king. Now we are in his presence, not standing as though we are condemned before a judge, but standing in the knowledge that we are sons and daughters of the Most High. We have peace with God. 
We are secure in his grace, Paul tells us. That we, as Nathan read just a moment ago in Hebrews chapter 10, now we walk into the the grace, the unmerited favor of God into his presence, and we do so boldly, not quivering in fear, but boldly coming before him, knowing that he desires for us to be there, and that because he paid the price, because he made it possible, no one can take that away from us. Your salvation, once you have placed your faith in Christ, is in his hand and nothing can change that. And so it changes how we relate to him. No longer do we just merely hope that our prayers are heard. Now we can know that they are unhindered before him. When we pray, we don't we don't just pray to the ceiling. Now we pray to the God who created all the universe. It should excite us. It should cause us to do exactly the next thing, which is to rejoice in our hope. Paul says that because of what God has done, now we look forward with great anticipation. No longer is heaven just something that we wish for and we cross our fingers and our toes and hope that when we die, maybe we'll get there. But now, through the blood of Jesus Christ and through faith in him, now we, we know what is to come. And we can be excited about it. We can be thankful for it. We used the example uh, last week of, it's like the kid that wishes that they could go to Disney World. And they hope and they, they pray and they, they ask mom and dad every day. And there, there's an anticipation, a hope that someday that this will happen But it's completely different when mom and dad sit them down at the kitchen table and they slide the envelope across and say, open it. We have a gift for you. And they open it up and there are the plane tickets and there are the tickets to the theme park. And now it's not just a wish. Now it's not just a dream. But now it's something that's come true. Now it's a date on the calendar that this is going to happen. So much more than we as believers, we don't just have a wish and a hope and a dream of heaven. Now we have an assurance that there is a date on the calendar when we will step in to the glory of God for all eternity. That, that, that right there was amen. There we go. It's an excitement that he has done this thing for us. But Paul has one more thing. He says it's not just rejoicing in our hope of things to come. But he says we also rejoice in our sufferings. You see the The grace of God and the work that he has done in our life is not just about what is to come. It is about the what is right now. Oftentimes, I hear fellow believers, and they mean well by this, but they are so excited about heaven and and what's to come. And in doing so, sometimes they miss that he desires to change the here and now. That salvation makes a difference on this side of heaven as well. Specifically, it makes a difference, Paul says, in how we view our sufferings. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't grieve. It doesn't mean that we don't shed tears. Certainly, we do those things. But as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we grieve differently than those who have no hope. We grieve differently. We don't grieve in such a way that everything as the world would look at it is pointless. The world sees suffering. It sees tragedy. And it says that's pointless. There is no reason for it. We can look at suffering and say, no, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of the worst things, God is still in control. 
and that he works things in our lives, even difficult trials, he works those things in our lives so that we may learn to depend upon him more, so that our faith may grow deeper, that we may know that he holds us. And so Paul, Paul ends chapter 5, verse 11 by saying, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation Paul is so excited by this gospel that is given to us that has changed our position before God. And so he goes back in verse 12. He says, therefore. So Paul, in light of this amazing change of position that has happened in our lives, going from the enemy of God, guilty before a holy God, condemned to death, to being a, at peace with God, to being a son and daughter of God, to being worthy of blessing. In light of all that, Paul goes back in verse 12 of chapter 5 and says, okay, how exactly did that happen again? And verse 12 through verse 21, in many ways, are kind of a, a recap of everything that has happened before. He, Paul shows us through the first Adam of our position, how we got in the place of need to begin with. And then he begins to show us what God has done because of that. So, coming back to chapter 12, let's look at, let's look at our passage this morning. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul starts this passage by showing us that humanity has two representatives. We have two representatives. Now, in the United States, we understand this fairly well, Right? We vote and we send a representative to state, local, national governments to stand, before, uh, stand for us to express our concerns and our desires that they may vote the way that we would desire them to. But there's a little bit of a deeper meaning when you go into Paul's time. In Paul's time, there would be a representative that would be the hero of the people, someone to fight on the people's behalf that would represent them in battle. And everything depended upon them winning or losing against the other side's hero. In the same way, Paul says we have two representatives. We have the first Adam. We have the first Adam who he describes in verse 12 as the one who brings sin into the world. This first Adam chose sin and offers death. Adam was created. You go back to Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 3. You see the creation of Adam. God takes dust and he forms it into an image. He breathes life into it. He creates Adam to have a relationship with him. He gives Adam a purpose to, to take care of the rest of creation. Eve is created to help with that purpose and to come alongside and yet Adam makes a dreadful choice. Adam decides that rather than follow the, the will of God, rather than to follow his purpose, Adam makes the decision to sin. He decides to disobey God in the one way that God had told him not to. He eats of the tree of good and evil. It's the knowledge of good and evil. And with it came a horrible outcome. With it came separation. 
Whereas beforehand, Adam and Eve had experienced an incredible relationship with God where he walked among them and conversed with them. Now, because of the sin that they had chose to pursue, they are removed from the Garden of Eden and that relationship is broken. No longer does he walk in their midst. No longer does he converse with them the way that he had before. And it's not just separation of Adam and God. There's a separation that happens between Adam and Eve. No longer is their relationship this built on this compatibility that God had placed, but now there is a friction that happens that we still deal with today in our human relationships. A, a friction that occurs because we choose to make life about us because we have a sinful, fleshful desires that cause us to rub against one another. And so there's a separation that happens. There's a guilt that happens. That we wear the weight of the decisions that we've made. And then ultimately, as we have said before, there is a consequence, which is death. Thank goodness that this is not our only choice for representative. That there is, in fact, a second Adam, as we heard earlier in one of our songs, that there is a second Adam, Jesus Christ and Jesus has chosen righteousness and offers life. Jesus comes in a way that had never seen, been seen before, the birth of a child through a virgin, and he chooses righteousness. He lives a perfect life in a way that no one else has or ever even could. And then he makes the ultimate choice of righteousness in going to the cross. And so there's a Instead of being a dreadful outcome to his decisions, there is a gracious outcome that now we are justified before God because of Jesus' decision. Now there is righteousness rather than guilt. Now there is life rather than death. Paul says this is, this, these are our choices, and he's bringing us to a place of choice. Who will be your representative? Who will you choose to stake your claim with, to hold on to? Will you choose the first Adam and say, I want to go with him, knowing that it leads to death? Or will you choose the second Adam, knowing that it leads to life? Sadly, many choose Adam because they think there's a freedom there. They think that there's a there's a less cost to it. Last summer, Melissa and I had the pleasure of going with her family and doing whitewater rafting. Um, and it was a blast. And it was an incredible river, class four, class five rapids. So this isn't your float trip, okay? This is, you know, wear a helmet type stuff. And so we're on this raft and we're talking to the guide and we made the one of us made the comment, I, do you think we could do this by ourselves? To which she laughed. And the guide looked at us and said, well, you're welcome to try it yourself, but I will tell you that the result will be much different than the result for today. And she began to tell us several stories of individuals who, have had, who made that choice to go it on their own, thinking that they would save themselves a few dollars, thinking that they would have more fun if someone wasn't telling them what to do. And what they found out was that the outcome was much, much different. Some of them were injured. Some of them were stranded. 
And some of them died. But they had done it their way. On the result side, she said, it's probably better than that you stick with the guide. Yes, the guide tells you what to do. The guide shouts at you and says, paddle forward, paddle back, left paddle forward, right paddle back. She tells you everything to do. She even tells you, if on the off chance that you fall out of the boat, this is the way you are to swim. You listen to me. You swim the direction I tell you because I'm going to get you to safety. Yes, she costs money. Yes, she tells you what to do. But trust me, you want the guide because you want to live and you want to enjoy it. In the same way, people approach these two representatives and they say, I want to do it my way. It's cheaper to do it my way. It's more fun to do it my way. But it leads to bad things and it most assuredly leads to death. But when we choose Christ and we listen to his words, it leads to life. It leads for us to understand this life differently. So Paul, Paul explains these two representatives. He leads us to this choice. Who are you going to decide? And then, interestingly enough, starting in verse 18 and going through 21, he begins to outline for us those that would object you see, there are some that would claim there is another way, that it's not merely just these two choices, but they would say that there is a law. What about the law? What about the Word of God? Specifically, when they are referring to the law, they're talking about the Old Testament. There was a saying in Paul's day, the more Torah, more life. More Torah, more life. In other words, the better you understood God's word, specifically in their case, the Old Testament, the better you understand this, then the better you will follow it, and then that will lead to life. That will lead to God's approval. And so Paul, desiring to answer this objection, says, heavens no. Looking, starting in verse 20. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let me read that again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul says it's actually just the opposite. You say that Learning the word of God and trying to follow the Old Testament code is going to bring you life. He goes, but what it actually does is the opposite. It actually exposes some pretty fatal mistakes. First, it brings full awareness. When we understand the word of God, it brings full awareness of our sin. I was sharing this uh, this morning in Sunday school with the youth. But let's say you come, let's say you're out mushroom hunting. And you're out and you're looking for those wonderful little morsels for you to fry later. And you come to a fence at the edge of your property. And you look to the other side of the fence and you see the prize. And you're like, oh, there, I know there's mushrooms right there. I can see them popping up. You have a decision to make. You can either... Respect the fence and respect a property line, or you can jump the fence and go get the mushrooms. And let's say you jump the fence and you go get those mushrooms, and there, but there's a tinge of guilt knowing that you have done something that you probably shouldn't have done. 
There's no sign posted. But there is an understanding that what you have decided to do was not the right thing to do. Your conscience speaks to your sin. Paul says in multiple places in chapters 1 through chapters 4 that this is what happens to those that are outside of the law. Those that didn't grow up in church, so to speak. That when they do, even when they do something wrong, that there is the conscience that speaks to us. You look at cultures around the world, and it's many times remarkable the similarities that their laws and their cultural customs have. Now, there are obviously the differences and, and changes that are made, but it's, it's honestly quite remarkable how similar they are. It's because God has imprinted upon us and our conscience, morality it is a sign of creation. And so Paul says that even if there's no sign posted, even without the law, there's a, con- there's a conscience that speaks to our guilt. However, let's say you approach the same fence, but now there is a purple stripe around every tree and there are no trespassing signs everywhere. Now you have a decision to make. But it's different, right? In in a sense, it's the same decision, but in a sense, it's not. Because in the first case, it's like, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but there's no signage up. There's nothing there to specifically say this is right or this is wrong. But when you come to the fence and there is all of the signage, now the decision is clear. If I step across this fence, I am guilty. I'm wrong. No questions asked. That is what the law does. That's what the Word of God does is it makes it clear when you are out of bounds. There is no saying, well, I didn't know. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to do that. Nobody told me that. No, when you have the word of God in front of you, it makes it clear you have made mistakes. And so Paul's argument is, rather than bringing life, what the law actually does is it increases your guilt. Not only that, but it brings with it direct disobedience. Having the law brings about direct disobedience. We are always prone to disobey God. We're always prone to do that. You look at what he says earlier in the chapter. He says in verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So we're always prone to disobey God. But when we have the law, something happens inside of us that should not. I don't know about you. I'm sure this isn't the case with you. I'm sure you were the golden child, every single one of you. But when I was growing up, there were times that my mom and dad would do something and I would not respond to it the way that they intended. Mom and dad would look at something and they would say, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't touch that. Don't mess with that. Don't eat that cookie. Don't whatever. You know what that did for me? That didn't, that didn't dissuade me. In fact, there were several times in my early childhood, we're going to say early childhood, that mom and dad would say, don't do this. And my thought was, you know, I had never considered that before. But now that you say it, that does sound pretty good. I really hadn't thought about doing that. But now that you say don't do it, that's an option. Like I could do that. And it sounds fun. 
I didn't even know those cookies were laying on the table, but now that I know they're there, by golly, I bet I could sneak one. Okay? My mom, my mom's favorite story to tell is we had a rule in our house. Mom was always baking for someone else, not for us. And mom's rule was you can eat the uglies. Don't eat the good ones, eat the uglies. Okay? Many of you are nodding your head. You understand what I'm saying? You know what my answer was to that? Walking by the oven and bumping the oven up two degrees so that they would all be ugly. That was not her intended, right? But that's, the, that's what happened. Don't tell her. Okay, but that's what would happen. Paul says, when we read the law, sometimes as an unintended consequence, what happens because we are fleshly sinful people is we read the law and rather than see, don't do this, we see, hey, here's a good idea. And we disobey directly. So now, not only is, do we have full awareness that we're doing it, what, is, what we're doing is wrong, but now we are in direct disobedience. So again, rather than the law giving life, the law increases our trespass. It increases our guilt. It increases our guilt. Hallelujah for the rest of this passage. It says in verse 20, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see, the law does something else. The law, in showing us the depths of our disobedience, it also highlights some things. It highlights the depths of God's grace. When you understand how broken you really are. When you understand how sick sin really has made you, then you understand all the better the glory of God in his grace. You understand better the depth of his unmerited favor towards you. It's not that you were just a little bit off. It's that you were a lot off. And he still desired you. That he still desired to make a way. Not only does it highlight the depth of God's grace, but it highlights the magnitude of the sacrifice. Jesus did not pay a 50 buck fine for you. He died for you. He shed his blood for you. He took your place we understand, when when we read the law and we understand the depths of our sin and the depths of what has went wrong and the depths of the penalty that we owed, then we better understand his grace and we better understand the sacrifice that he made. If you've been paying attention at all to the news, you've been seeing a revival that has been happening in Kentucky at at a university there in Asbury. And it's been amazing to see and it's been exciting I read one commentator, though, that said something that I thought was important. He said, we see the excitement of revival. We see the praise and the the joy and and the the presence of God descend, and that's, that's good. But we need to understand that that is not the first part of revival. The first part of revival is agony over our sins. It's understanding that we are in need of a Savior. And then seeing the 
magnitude of the sacrifice that was made for us. And then when we respond to that, revival comes. The law helps us to see the trespass better so that we can better appreciate his grace and his sacrifice. It better helps us to understand the wonder of this new life. The wonder of new life. Baptism is a beautiful picture of what happens in the Christian life. We are put under the water and brought back up, symbolizing our death of our old life and the resurrection to a new life. We are born again. Scripture uses that, that wordage, that verbiage. We are born again. And so now, when we see our life as it was under the law, when we were unable to save ourselves, when we were condemned, now, on this side, we understand the wonder of being at peace with God, of being justified, of being redeemed. And we are able to appreciate it and do, as what he says in chapter 5, rejoice in it, be excited about it, have it exude from our being. Because we understand it better. Paul ends, Paul ends this passage in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. After having shown us the result of trying to follow the law after having shown us how grace abounds and, and getting us excited about that. He brings us once again, just as he has earlier in the passage, to a place of making a choice. A place of making a choice. Who will be on your throne? It's interesting, in chapter, at the, here at the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, Paul begins to personify sin. He begins to help us to see it in a different light. One commentator says this, The vocabulary used in association with sin clearly shows that Paul personified it. Sin is king. Sin is a slave owner, is dead or alive. Sin is an external power alien to man's true nature as God intended it. It is an enemy that has invaded man, has occupied his flesh, and holds him captive. Holds him captive. Sin reigns in the heart of man, and the instrument of his reign is death. It's fear. It may seem like freedom, but it is control. Not able to choose righteousness, but always destined to choose sin. Thankfully, again, Paul says there is another choice. He says, now grace reigns through righteousness towards life. Going on with this commentator, it says, the, he says, sin, or sorry, let me get back to where I was. He says, it is an enemy that has invaded man, has occupied his flesh, and holds him captive. The world apart from Christ is under sin's control. Christ's work was to attack sin on its own ground and to defeat it. The man in Christ enters into this victory and is delivered from sin's tyranny. If in this life, sin is ever trying to reassert its old authority, but Christians are urged to shut the doors against it, for it has no right to come in again. It has no right to come in again. 
Sin once reigned, but now grace is available to all if we will place it on the throne of our hearts, if we will trust in Christ and follow him. Paul, just as he did with the first and second Adam, Paul is drawing us to make a decision. Who reigns in you? Who reigns in you? Because it makes all the difference in the world. You must make this decision. Will it be Christ? Will it be Christ? Will you come to him in asking for forgiveness, believing in his sacrifice? Will you come to him committing to follow him in obedience and therefore finding life and hope? Or will you choose sin? Will you choose to follow your own path, knowing full well that it leads to destruction? That's your choice this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never made that choice, I, will, I pray that you would heed the words of God, that you would know what he desires for you. You would know the links that he has gone to offer this gift of grace of blessing, that you would understand the depths of your need and that you would pray to him, Lord, please forgive me. I believe that you died for me, that you paid my price, that you rose again three days later, and I want to follow you. And then tell somebody about it. That's the first step of obedience. Tell somebody about it so that we can help you. Believer, if you're here this morning, I hope you heard that quote there at the end that says, that sin is constantly trying to creep back in our lives. And as Christians, we have to shut the door because it no longer has a place in our life. We said that revival starts with understanding the sin in our own life. Believer, I, I ask, have you considered that lately? Have you kept the door shut? Or has sin creeped back in and do you need to shove it back out the door to allow Christ to sit on the throne Pray that you would, again, hear the words of God and take stock of what is happening in your own life. Ask him to bring you to that place of revival. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We're going to have a time of response. Paul has brought us to this place of decision. He's brought us to this place of, of a choice question is, what, what choice will you make this morning? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, you are glorious. You are truly awesome. And Lord, we have seen more than once this morning how you desire to give life and to give life abundantly, to steer us through the obstacles of life, to be with us in the trials and the sufferings of life. Lord, that you desire to give us a hope that no one can snatch away from us. And Lord, you've brought us to this place of decision, Lord, where we must ask ourselves, who will we follow? Father, I pray this morning, Lord, I pray that we would grab hold of you and you alone. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ.